Welcome to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode nine of the COO Roundtable. Uh, one quick housekeeping item. I wanted to say congratulations to our announcer, uh, Luke Sonnen. He started first grade last week. Uh, other than losing, other than losing his homework uh, out of his backpack on the very first day of school, and then losing his lunch card on the third day, uh, I think we had a pretty good week. Um, we call him the mayor because he struts around school waving and saying good morning to virtually every child and every teacher he passes. So he was very excited to start class this year and, and meet new friends. So we wanted to say congratulations to Luke. Um, we continue to get really amazing feedback about this podcast. I, I want to thank everyone for listening, and a lot of people have been sharing this with their colleagues. So thank you, everyone, for doing that and spreading the word about what we're trying to do with this podcast. Again, I am a recovering COO myself of a multi-billion dollar RIA, and uh, during my time at Focus Financial, I predominantly worked with the COOs at all of the various Focus firms, and then most of our consulting engagements here at PFI Advisors, whether we're doing a, an M&A integration project, or we're starting an RA from scratch, or obviously our COO resource offering, most of the time we're interacting with the COO or the operations staff at all of these firms. So I feel like I have a unique opportunity to understand the nuances of the COO role. And while many advisors assume the COO function is predominantly a technology position, they say, hey, I just need someone to come in here and clean up my tech stack. Um, we know that the role is much, much larger than that. And we're hoping to draw attention to that fact with this, with this podcast. And in fact, as, as I've been talking to people and getting feedback about our content, a lot of people lately have been asking us for more details around HR and the human side of the role. Um, because at a high level, the role of the COO is to execute the owner's vision through both people and technology. Um, if you don't have influence with the people, if you can't foster a collaborative firm culture, if you can't get adoption, not only for your technology tools, but for the workflows and the client service model, um, you're going to have a really tough time in, in the role. So for this episode, I wanted to turn to Private Ocean, a $2 billion RIA. They have several offices in Northern California and one in Seattle. Um, we have with us today Susan Dixon the COO and principal of the firm, and Suzanne Williamson, also a principal of the firm. She's also the director of client services. So we have a Susan and a Suzanne. So we'll see how many times I screw this up. Um, but in the meantime, uh, welcome both of you and thank you both for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Perfect. Um, so Private Ocean was recently named for the ninth time a, quote, best place to work. And they take their culture extremely serious. Uh, in fact, when you go to their website, the menu at the top of the page, it doesn't say about us or team or who we are, which you normally see. It simply says culture. Um, there are drop downs below each of these main headers, but the website is very clean. The, the top menu, it simply says experience, um, which obviously is about the client experience, culture, which is uh, the firm and the people, and then perspectives. Um, and that's their news section, which is the blog and podcast, and they're in the news uh, section. So simply experience, culture, perspectives. And I really, I love that, just how, how clean that is. So um, Susan, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on the firm? Okay. So uh, 
Private Ocean, the original firm started in 1983, and that was Salient Financial Corp. Uh, Richard Stone was the CEO at that time of that uh, organization, and he actually met up with Greg Friedman in around 2007, 2008, and they started talking about, well, you know what? Your firm, Greg, is right up here in Novato. Our firm's here in San Rafael. Maybe we should try to bring the two firms together and merge. So Private Ocean, we merged as Salient Friedman instead of, it wasn't Private Ocean in the beginning. It was Salient Friedman in 2009. So May 1st of 2009, we became Salient Friedman. And another year later, we um, became Private Ocean. We changed the name. Salient Friedman was a little awkward and odd. So uh, Private Ocean was uh, the name that was chosen and primarily because we felt that our service was very personal and that our resources were powerful. So that was the um, impetus for personal, powerful wealth management at Private Ocean. We have 51 employees. Our ideal client is 2 million and above. Um, however, that's always a little bit of a gray area. We are always looking at next gen, uh, younger clients, how can we service them? What kind of an offering can we give to the children of our clients? So that's always something that's top of mind. But ideally our clients would have 2 million or more in investable assets. Historically, we have grown organically for the most part, other than the merger, because once we merged with um, Greg in 2009, we actually worked for several years on uh, building the culture and the team that we have now. So we did not uh, look again at doing any kind of M&A until probably maybe 2016, we started looking at that opportunity again. And um, the growth vision at this point in time, we're always interested in M&A. We acquired two firms in 2018, so we've had a lot to digest. And at this point in time, don't anticipate any additional M&A, at least for the next couple of years. However, we do have a vision to, you know, be a three to $5 billion firm um, in the next few years so how that happens who knows <laughs> i think that's fantastic that you are not going too quickly on the m&a front and making sure that you fully digested each of those acquisitions before you've you've moved on um that that's that's great um suzanne uh not every ra has a director of client services can you tell us a little bit about that role sure love to um so i'll tell you how i started out and move right into where, where I'm at today. Um, my background right out of college, I, I joined a small advisory firm and was there for a few years, then went to a large broker dealer, um, spent about nine years there, um, learning all the various functions of a broker dealer, and then uh, proceeded to go to a small RIA and from there came to Private Ocean in 2015. Um, the, the role of Director of Client Services, my main role is to manage the client service group. But 
more than that, it's really um, a role of being a liaison between the different departments. So not only do we want to, you know, a great client service team who works really well together um, and learns from each other and learns from everybody in the firm, but we also need to be sure that the team of our investment group, the advisors and the client service all work really well together and we're continually looking at how we improve our processes. Um, so getting feedback from everybody um, and, and working together is um, kind of the, my role as the manager of client service. That's great. And Matt, do you mind if I jump in yeah. and add that, you know, one of the things that's really great about Private Ocean is we really try to empower the people that work here. And I think that something I'm very proud of was that early on uh, in the days of Salient Friedman even, we created what we call an expanded leadership team. And that was where we started having the, you know, different directors in different areas. Uh, really kind of managing their own people and creating this expanded leadership team that did work, you know, like Suzanne said, she's liaison for investment operations and advisors, and they work well together in this expanded leadership role to uh, refine processes and those kinds of things. That's great. Um, so tell us, Susan, tell us your background. Obviously, you've, you've, uh, Going back to the salient Friedman days, you've been, you've been uh, with the firm a long time. What were you? Where were you before joining Private Ocean? And then how? Uh, in the amount of time you've been there, how have you kind of zigged and zagged your way to the COO position? So I actually came in in 2005. So I ha I haven't been here since the the day it was founded. Um, that would make me even older than I am. <laughs> but uh, I uh, I started off. Early in my career, I had been running businesses forever. My ex-husband and I had um, garden centers. I then moved from garden centers to wineries, from wineries to uh, nonprofit education. And during the course of time that I was working in nonprofit education, I was getting my MBA. So I was like, well, you know, at the end of the day, because it was a Catholic teaching order, there wasn't a great opportunity for me to really spread my wings and do more in the business realm of that organization. And somehow fate had me land in uh, financial services. So I always believed that business is business. The language changes a little bit here and there, but you, if you're a COO of one place or a, or a business manager in one place, you can certainly trans, you know, transition into a different industry once you've learned the language. Um, I came in, I think my first year I was considered the business manager. Richard had hired me to come in and institutionalize this business because he had a vision for growth. And it, within the next couple of years, really took on the COO role more from a strategic level, you know, taking on at that time, we were fairly small. So taking on marketing and um human resources and finance and administration and, you know, all of that, plus overseeing some of the technology, although I was never the expert in that. So uh, there were others that were much better suited to do, you know, work with Portfolio Center and do the work that needed to be done there. So that, that's kind of the evolution. It's, it's been an interesting ride. 
And in oh, so you're two billion today. Uh, in oh five, what was when you joined? How big was the firm? We were a hundred million. Wow. And so you're 51 employees today. <laughs> Do you remember how many employees there were on, on day one for you? Well, when I came in, there were probably, they had just hired a couple of service advisors. So I would say I, it was probably, I think, five or six employees wow. at the time. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And then, so so Suzanne came from within the industry. You had that outsider's perspective. What pros and cons have you experienced as that quote outsider, what did you struggle with? What benefits do you think you got? I mean, you talked a little bit about business is business, but um, I think a lot of COOs struggle with the lingo and just sort of understanding things. What, uh, what's been your perspective? The cons I think have been just the idea that perhaps being an outsider, you really couldn't grasp the industry. You couldn't grasp the complexity of the industry. Um, the, you know, the ins and outs. And I think there's some perception out there that that's the case. I don't agree with it because I do believe when I did come in, um, while I did not know the industry at that time, very quickly came up to speed with the lingo. Now, to be quite frank, I'm not an advisor. And oftentimes um, the expectation is that the advisor is going to evolve into a leadership role either CEO, COO, whatever it might be. And that wasn't necessary for me to get a full understanding. I needed to know what the advisors did, but I didn't know need to know exactly how they did it in order to have my role be, um, you know, where it needed to be. So I hope that answers the question. I think that there are a lot of benefits by bringing someone in from the outside because a lot of times in any industry, you get a little bit myopic because you don't see past the blinders of the industry that you know. I saw that happen quite a bit in the wine industry. I, I think that you know bringing in different perspectives can be really helpful for an organization because you bring with it you know some of the traditions and histories of other industries and integrate it into, in this case, financial services. Yep. And Suzanne, there, there really is no right or wrong answer, but what, what is your opinion? Is it better to find talent, um, not necessarily for the COO role, but just, just finding talent for, for Private Ocean? Do you think it's better to pull from within the industry or f- from outside? I think it depends on the role. If, if we look at client service, actually both work. Um, if you bring somebody within the industry, they immediately come in, they've got experience, they've got knowledge, they can hit the ground running, they can work with more complex issues. Um, but bringing somebody in, which we have done successfully, who had no experience in the financial industry, they bring different experiences to the table. Um, they have a learning curve to get up to speed, but you also have different um needs. So you have smaller clients that aren't as complex, that are more transaction oriented. So somebody coming in with little experience, if they have great client service skills, can easily manage those relationships and work with those clients. And you have the more senior, more experienced people working with those clients that, like I said, have more complex issues. So I think both work and it's just how you position them within the firm. Yeah, and I think that's a great answer. Um, Susan, uh, 
you've so you've had such tremendous growth that that you've witnessed 100 million up to 2 billion five or six employees up to 50 um what challenges has that growth posed for you as the COO and and how have you managed it I think that the growth <laughs> I think that it has been a great adventure let's <laughs> put it that way I think that um, the biggest challenge is always making sure you have the right people in the right seats, the right people on the bus, uh, that things are going well, that they're happy. You know, clients are both external and internal. And I think throughout the process of, of this growth that we've had, the most important thing has been to make sure that the people were taken care of as we went through a lot of challenges because it's it's not just challenge for the leadership team. It's challenge for everybody in the firm. Every time you do any kind of an acquisition, you shake up everybody. It's not just the firm you just acquired, but it's also the whole organization that they're coming into. And so it's a lot of the challenges, you know, it's funny, the, the technology and the, um, systems, while they're challenging, and they definitely are hard sometimes to integrate, and it takes time and a lot of work, and people get frustrated and pull their hair out. If you can keep the culture in a good place, and you can keep everybody bonding and bringing people together and making sure that everybody knows that, you know, their participation is valued, I think that it, it works really well. So we've had our, we've had our moments. Uh, there were some times where things weren't as easy as they, you know, might we might wish they had been, uh, both with people and with systems. However, I think that we've been able to overcome most of our challenges and really have built a solid, what we would consider pretty much an A-team uh, throughout the organization, including both of the acquisitions that we made last year. I think that I feel pretty comfortable that they are you know, they are private ocean. We are one team at this point in time. Yeah. I don't know if it was you driving it or not, but I, I said it earlier. I think that's, that's, it is very rare. Um, for a firm to do the, between the first acquisition and the second, there usually is quite a bit of time because it's pretty shocking to everybody and you kind of have to digest it. Uh, but then the time between the second and the third is probably is usually much shorter. And then third to fourth is even shorter than that. People get you know, the owners of the organization get deal happy. And so I think it's so great how you guys have, have really done this in a structured uh, a way um, of, of fully integrating each acquisition first, getting it right, making sure that everybody is settled in the right seats, and then and then thinking about the, the next one. I think that's I think that's great. Well, realistically, I think that Greg and I would have had a mutiny had we said, <laughs> "Gee, let's do another acquisition right, <laughs> right now." Yep. I, I I think that you know, and to be respectful and respect all of the people is so important because they're, you know, they're here, this is their home too. And this is where they're going to be for their career. So we, you know, we want to be respectful of, of what others are experiencing here yeah, too. That's so important. Um, Suzanne, your bio on the website, it says, uh, quote, you ensure that client, that the clients always experience exceptional service. And you're focused on identifying better and more efficient ways to deliver on Private Ocean's commitment to clients and colleagues. So your entire role, really, it feels like your entire role is built around managing this growth 
and finding ways. It's the, the elusive problem that every RA has. How do you serve more and more clients and still make them feel special? Um, so what strategies or tactics have you used uh, to manage the exceptional growth that the firm has, has been experiencing? I would say, um, first off, building a strong team within, you know, across our offices. Um, the, the client service team is really um, has two roles. It's supporting clients and it's supporting our financial advisors. So we meet weekly, religiously, we meet every week. We talk about best practices. We talk about how we can improve processes. Uh, we talk about new learnings that anybody had on the team. Um, it's a way to bring the group together so the remote, you know, the offices that aren't at our main headquarters, so they feel included in the process. Um, and we reach out to advisors. We, you know, we say, what can we take off your plates? What is time consuming for you, advisor? How can we, the client service group, better support you to deliver that excellent service to the client? We have um, these guiding principles that we all live by here at Private Ocean, um, and I won't name them all, but basically we do everything in service of our clients. We're intellectually curious. We laugh. So we create quarterly goals, and those are all they're, they're all based on what the company goals are. So, uh, you know, we're all focused on how do we make it easier for clients to work with us? How are we, um, you know, delivering excellent service all the way from the way we talk to clients over the phone, the way we communicate via email. So we're constantly looking at that. Um, and, you know, I visit the other offices consistently. We have one-on-one -on -one meetings. So it's really like from the inside out. If we're focused on internally growing and you know, thinking, how can we make this easier for our clients? We, we really look at that a lot. And I think that's some of the tactics yeah. I've used. <laughs> I love, you had said it earlier, the external versus internal clients, um, serving both the advisors and, and the, the, the clients. Uh, obviously, the, the advisors are being served well by the organization. The clients will be served well. So um, I think it's great. Um, uh, so we, we talked about I, I talked about culture a little bit in the in the intro. I know you protect your culture uh, and you're both very dedicated to not only uh, preserving the culture, but improving it uh, on a day to day basis. Um, as I mentioned, you've been named uh, nine times. That's amazing. Nine times best place to work. So you're obviously doing something right. Um, so Suzanne, talk, talk to us a bit about the culture at Private Ocean. Um, you've talked a little bit about the principles and things. How integral is culture to the client experience? I would have, I have a couple of things to, um, to say there. I think if you have happy employees, that comes across to your clients. And um, so I think being very focused on the employees and the culture here and having it a place uh, where people want to come to work. Um, we prom promote a lot of learning. Um, we give um, employees the ability to give feedback and, and share ideas. Um, and then we do a lot of team building. We have um, community outreach that we do. Um, we just did a great volunteer day. We have retreats where we're offsite. We do team training. Uh, we just did one about clear conversation. So we're, we continually improve our skills to give each other really direct and clear feedback. Um, so people, 
they really love that. I mean, the feedback we get, I had an employee just tell me yesterday, oh my gosh, I just love that training we just had. I feel so much better. You know, it empowers employees to speak up and really be part of this one big private ocean team. So, yeah, it's a great place to work. It is. Yeah, and to camp on to that, I think, you know, one of the things when we first did this uh, communication training, we were doing it for advisors, and we had a gentleman come in and, and work with them. And the, they enjoyed it so much and felt it was so beneficial that we said, well, wait a minute, let's let's get the whole organization and at least have a, you know, a shorter version of this, even though they're not going to do business development or anything like that. Let's bring everybody in. And, and that was really, it was, it was a great training that we had just recently. And I think adding on to that, we, we do something that we feel is very unique and special. And we have a family weekend every year where we take everyone out to a camp at the Russian river and uh, everyone comes there. It's well, everyone that can come comes and it's um, spouses and significant others and children. And we're there from Friday night until Sunday around noon and dogs and dogs. <laughs> dogs are there. We kayak, we cook together. One of the, the, the highlights is that we actually cook together on Saturday night. There are teams that have, you know, they work together on their dishes, their recipes, their ingredients and put it all together so we tried one year to have it catered because we thought it was a lot of work and everybody, you know, rebelled and said, no, 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 no. We love the team cooking. So, wow. yeah, it's kind of a unique thing I think, that we do. That is, that is unique. That's great. Um, I recently ran into Stacy McKinnon of uh, Morton Capital. She was on the podcast uh, a few months ago. Um, and she told me, Susan, that, that you have a uh, personality test that you give shortly after hiring new employees. And th this, uh, this isn't part of the um, application process, but once they're hired, this personality test gives some uh, feedback on the learning style uh, of the employee and the communication style. Can you tell us a little bit uh, of, of how this works and how you implement it? Sure. So we use what's called the Berkman method, B-I-R-K-M-A-N. Um, it's a great tool, especially for uh, helping organizations, helping teams in organizations communicate better. Um, what it does is it takes a look. It's not it, it is a personality test. There are a lot of them out there. There's DISCs and DISC and Strengths Finder and, you know, the Myers-Briggs and all of those. The uniqueness about this particular tool is that it addresses needs, which people can't really see in any individual, and what happens if those needs aren't met and you go into stress behavior. And if you go into stress behavior, it can be very, very toxic in an organization. So we have been using Berkman since 2005, and we have talked about potentially using it in the hiring uh, process. However, we've not really done that yet. What we do find, though, is just by keeping it aware, keep raising the level of awareness about Berkman and what it represents, we find that there's, you know, it's, it helps in aids in communication. It helps people understand that we're all different. We bring unique things to the table. And, you know, we receive information differently and that, you know, when someone is under stress, we're now more able to recognize that stress behavior in someone and say, well, you know, you're, you're going into blue stress or red stress. These are the colors that are used in the Berkman. 
or for, you know, it's not really to be used as an excuse. <laughs> Someone can't say, well, I'm in red stress, so too bad for you. But what they can say is, or, or they can look at is our hope is that they're going, oh, I'm going into this stress behavior. Let me just stop a minute and bring myself back above the line. And we've used it a lot, of, a few times in conflict resolution, where there was a time, if you don't mind if I explain the story a little bit, we had, it was a client service situation, so Suzanne was involved. And we had a couple of client service people. One under stress was just panicked and freaking out. And the other under stress was, went chill. Well, what happens is the one under stress was assuming that the one that was chill was doing nothing and not helping her and not you know, making her life easier. And why isn't he asking if he can help me? Well, it turned out that he actually had more clients and more AUM than she did and had just as much going on. But his behavior was, you know, made it look like he was just skating along. So by bringing everybody together with the Berkman and sitting down with it going, okay, guys, you know, Let's, let's kind of look at what's going on here. They were able to really kind of understand each other better and resolve this, you know, this underlying conflict that existed. So that's, it's been a really valuable tool for us, and we keep it alive um, consistently in the organization. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the example. That's, that's great. Your perception is reality, and so if, if um, using these tools can help uh, – people's perception of what really is happening. Uh, they said this, it made me feel that way. That wasn't what they meant. <laughs> you interpreted it differently than what they really did say or what they meant by saying, I think that's great. And that, that has to, um, obviously I'm an outsider, but I just got to assume that that has to limit the amount of conflict going on from a day to day. We, we do, we are in a stressful, uh, industry. <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's great that, that, um, I hadn't heard of this before. This is, um, uh, really, uh, interesting. Yeah, it's a great tool, and I, I tell you, there are some big organizations that use it, which is really interesting, too. I mean, obviously, I'm passionate about it, and it's something I got certified in on purpose just because I wanted to continue to use it in our organization. Perfect. Um, so I want to talk about M&A a little bit. We, we've already discussed it um, uh, to some extent. But um, I did want to mention um, Greg Friedman, the, the founder and CEO of Private Ocean. He wrote an amazing book earlier this year with Sean Kapazinski from Sequoia Financial. Um, the book is called The Financial Advisor M&A Guidebook, and it details the operational aspects involved in a successful acquisition. Um, we preach this all the time. Again, we're very ops-oriented. Um, we're preaching the, the ops side of the M&A all the time. Most of our industry is just talking about valuation and deal structure, et cetera. Um, so I gravitated to this book um, right away. Um, we had Sean, Sean's been on the podcast. He talked about the book a little bit um, during his uh, session, um, but I've also written about uh, the book uh, on our blog. We have a dedicated blog post just to the, to the book itself, um, talking about how great it is and how it lays out. Um, it's a very logical, easy to understand progression through the entire M&A integration process. Um, and, and I'll put another link um, for this uh, episode. I'll put another link to the, to the book. I just think it's so great. But um, Susan, uh, the COO's role in the M&A function, what do you think, um, what is your interpretation of, of the COO's role in these acquisitions? 
Well, in you know, in our acquisitions, I mean, I can really only speak from my own experience. Uh, we have, I've been involved from the beginning in the initial conversations. We have kind of created a a list or a guidelines to go through the initial conversation with a potential acquisition candidate. Uh, definitely, we've kissed a lot of frogs. We but I, you know, basically we're looking at the very beginning is their cultural fit. And so I'm in on those conversations. I have been in from the very beginning on all acquisitions. We, my role really has been that. And then of course, all of the legal work that goes with it um, comes through me to our corporate lawyers, our corporate attorneys, all of that uh, information. But Primarily, it really is really from the beginning to the end, having the conversations, having them again. It's like a, you know, it's like going out to dinner and dating somebody. And, and there, have, there has to be several conversations before you really decide whether or not a marriage is possible. So um, my role has really been because I have, uh, because of my background and because my doctorate is in organizational leadership, I think that that brings, you know, something more of a strategic role to us anyway than might otherwise be the case in a COO situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been involved from beginning to end and, you know, until the papers are signed. <laughs> I love <laughs> And that. then the fun starts. Yes, exactly. Once the papers are signed. I um, Obviously, I'm totally biased. <laughs> uh, I have this operations mindset, but I, I love that you're there in the very beginning. I just, I see it over and over and over again. Um, the thought process is, oh, geez, the last person I want involved during the dating process. I don't want any operations people near this acquisition target. They're going to complicate things. Um, they're going to slow the process down. They're going to scare away the acquisition target. Again, I'm biased, but I don't know how you can go down the path of a, a potential uh, M&A transaction without thinking of how. <laughs> how are we going to do this? How are our firms going to come together? How are we going to integrate your clients and your employees, et cetera? To me, it just seems like it, it makes perfect sense. But um, in my experience, it, uh, your experience is in the minority where you're involved very early on in the process. I love to hear this, though. This is great. Yeah. And I, like I said, I do think we're unique in that way. Also, I, I, uh, and I'm glad. And it, it, you know, I got to hand it to Greg. I mean, he's the one that makes sure that you know I'm brought in. But not only me. I mean, a lot of times, you know, by the third or fourth conversation, he's bringing in other people in the firm also to introduce them. That's great. Um, so, Suzanne. Um, how have you best integrated your acquisitions into the firm from a culture and client service standpoint? I think we've uh, the, the, we've really tried to, from the very start, have a presence in the other offices. Um, it, everybody's been to the main office here in San Rafael. Um, we switch off each month. One of us is flying up to Seattle. Um, we go to, I go to San Francisco once a week. So frequently visiting, um, bringing everybody together. Um, uh, you know, we want everybody to have a voice. We've been pretty methodical in the way we've looked at processes. 
and we first, you know, said, okay, how do we onboard clients? And we have many meetings incorporating everybody, the advisors, client service, and figure out how we can put best practices from all offices into one workflow. So we work together. It's not, we haven't just said it's our way. We, we've actually really worked hard with everybody to, um, to make those processes work. And, you know, from a culture standpoint, um, we have these retreats twice a year. We do these team building things. We use a program called Reflective. So we give shout outs to people online where everybody can see. So if people do something that, you know, warrants somebody giving them a compliment, everybody sees that. So it's really um, just making sure people are empowered and giving their, you know, using their voice and offering input and working together. And you know what, Matt, we've just in instituted uh, what we call the wave. Okay. And uh, we have these glass waves, uh, ocean waves, that it, we give to an employee each month. And the employees are voted in, you know, or nominated by their peers. So that, you know, on something they did that was exceptional. So it's kind of like the employee of the month concept, yeah. mm -hmm. um, but it's, uh, it's the private ocean wave. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, I, I said it at the beginning, the people side of the COO role is so critical. I don't think these soft skills that we've talked about today get nearly enough attention. So I can't thank you both enough for sharing your knowledge and your experience with, with our listeners today. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Matt. You. We really appreciate it. Great. Uh, so that's a wrap on episode nine. Um, please continue to share this podcast with anyone in our industry that's struggling with the business side of, of their RIA. Um, we also write a lot of practice management articles on our blog. The last several articles we've written uh, have been very relevant to the COO uh, role. We've tackled uh, profitability versus growth, uh, designing and developing workflows, um, we had an article about uh, technology integrations throughout the back office and uh, whether or not you should be charging clients for reporting on outside assets. So please check out uh, the content there. That's at pfiadvisors.com. And thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you soon.